From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, April 5th. I'm Marco Werman. A British terror suspect fights extradition to the U.S. He's been held without trial for years. I've never been questioned about the allegations against me. I've never been shown the evidence against me. I think it's fair to say that I'm fighting for my life and I'm running out of time. And later, tweeting Ai Weiwei's every move. Ai Weiwei at this moment is sleeping in his bed. His cat is sitting on the stool. Mm. Now he's at his desk doing emails. Until the Chinese dissident was forced to turn off his webcam. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. And by WGBH, producer of NOVA with Deadliest Tornadoes. Scientists are striving to understand the forces at work behind last year's most extreme tornado outbreak in decades. Wednesday, April 11th at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The Pentagon is preparing for the trial of professed 9-11 mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and four suspected co-conspirators in Guantanamo next month. But those men are not the only terror suspects awaiting their day in court after being held without trial for years. So is Babar Ahmed. He's accused of running websites that raised money for terrorists and supplying terrorists with gas masks and night vision goggles. The U.S. case against him can't proceed, though, unless Ahmed's extradited. He's a British citizen arrested in Britain in 2004 on a U.S. extradition warrant. He's been in jail in the U.K. ever since. Next week, the European Court of Human Rights is expected to decide if Ahmed can be extradited to the U.S. for trial. The BBC's Dominic Kashiani has just interviewed Babur Ahmed in prison. And Dominic, first of all, thanks for joining us and for explaining the story to us. It's a pleasure. Babar Ahmed says that he has been a victim of injustice. Uh, I want to start by uh, playing a clip from your interview with him in which he explains why he wanted to do this interview with you in the first place. I've been in prison now for nearly eight years without trial. I'm facing extradition to the U.S. and the rest of my life in solitary confinement. I've never been questioned about the allegations against me. I've never been shown the evidence against me. I think it's fair to say that I'm fighting for my life and I'm running out of time. Babar Ahmad speaking with Dominic Kashiani in the Long Larton Prison in England. So, Dominic, we should say that your conversation with Babar Ahmad was not an easy process. What did you have to do to be able to meet with him? Well, I had to take uh, two of our government ministers to court. Simple as that. It's mm. not something a journalist gets up in the morning expecting to do. Uh, more than a year ago, we, um, we put in an application to see this guy in prison. We believed there was strong public interest in hearing his story, he's now set a record for the amount of time he's spent inside. No British citizen who hasn't been convicted of a crime has spent as long in prison as Barbara Ahmed. And there's a growing concern in the UK about the extradition arrangements to the U- US. His case is clearly one of those which touches on that. So we asked to go and see him. We were told we couldn't go and see him, that we couldn't film an interview with him. And we challenged the UK's Ministry of Justice, which runs the prisons. It's equivalent of your federal prison service. And uh, our high court 
looked at the case and they they ruled in the BBC's favour. They said that our freedom of speech had been breached, that we should be allowed because of the public interest in his case and that people should get to see and hear Barbara Ahmed because of the legitimate public interest in what he has to say about how he's been treated and extradition in general to the United States. What are the specific allegations against Babar Ahmed? Well, he faces some very serious allegations, and I think this needs to be said at the outset. In 2004, he was arrested on a US extradition warrant as he left his office in London. And the police who arrested him on behalf of the United States said that he would would be charged with four crimes, namely uh, providing material support to terrorism overseas, doing that through a website, uh, conspiring to kill and money laundering for terrorism. Now, at the heart of these allegations is something called Azam.com. And in the late 90s, Azam.com was the first and only preeminent website in English if you were interested in the Mujahideen. And by that, I mean people who'd fought in Bosnia, people who were fighting in Chechnya, people who had connections to Afghanistan and what was going on there. If you were a Muslim who spoke English, if you were a Muslim in the West, the place you went for information was Azam.com. And that was the website that Barbara Ahmed allegedly ran. Now, that's at the centre of these allegations. And the US said that he used that website to provide material support around the world over a number of years. And that's why they say they they want to prosecute him. Okay, let's play another clip from your interview uh, with Babar Ahmed in, in which he responds to those allegations. I absolutely reject any allegation that I have supported terrorism in any way, in any place, whether in Afghanistan or in Chechnya or any other part of the world. I believe terrorism to be wrong, and I believe the targeting and kill of innocent people to be wrong. They say that the Azam.com website was used to recruit young Muslims in the West for jihad. This is an extremely serious allegation, as you yourself said. I've never been questioned about this allegation. I've never been shown the evidence in relation to this uh, allegation, and I've never been shown the case against me. So anyone can make any allegation that they want. But there is a process where if someone is sent to prison for years and years, he at least should know what is the case against him. He at least should be shown the evidence against him so that he is able to respond to it. And the right place for me to respond to these allegations is either in a court of law or in a formal police interview. So the United States uh, sees Babar Ahmed uh, as supporting terrorism. Ahmed rejects that. Dominic Kashiani, why has he been held for eight years without charge, though? Quite simply because his case has been so extremely complicated. I mean, it it started with the whole issue where he should be tried. Now, I mean, to bring it down simply, he says that the evidence against him was gathered in London when he was originally arrested by the Metropolitan Police Scotland Yard, our detectives here in London. He says that they amassed evidence from his house. There was a decision not to charge him in the UK. Now, he says that that evidence that was amassed at the time he was originally arrested was sent to the states so that the Americans could build a case against him. He's been battling against this, arguing he should be tried here. But secondly, his is one of six cases that's at the European Court of Human Rights. Now, the European Court is is our highest court, which decides on uh, the really, really big cases across the whole of the continent. And next week... It will rule on whether men like Baba Ahmed can be sent to the United States to potentially face life imprisonment in, in what European court has been told anyway are pretty harsh conditions. Now, that's been a very complicated issue for the courts because the court doesn't necessarily want to get involved in diplomatic extradition arrangements between individual countries. It believes it's there to protect rights in Europe. And the big issue it's got to deal with is whether 
the American Constitution and the rights which were afforded to defendants under that constitution matches and is comparable to the European Convention of Human Rights, which protects people here. Now, Barbara Ahmed's lawyers say that the prison conditions he would face in the States are not comparable to conditions here, that we in Europe would never have a prison comparable to those in the States. Our prisons are much better, they say, and this is one of the issues they're wrestling with. So it sounds like his main concern is where he serves time and not necessarily whether he serves time, correct? Yeah, absolutely, because he, because at the heart of this is this issue about where where he feels he's going to get a better deal. Part of it, th- this, though, of course, is about the whole issue of what he can be charged with. Now, the complicated matter about Barbara Armour's case is he's not charged with anything simple like uh, membership of al-Qaeda, things like that. You know, he's charged with support of the Mujahideen and, and a global jihad. Well, what is that? How, you, how do you define that? And, and the courts in Britain have taken a slightly different view on this to the courts in America. I have seen cases where you've had men on comparable charges to Barbara Ahmed who have had a comparable background. For instance, Barbara Ahmed fought in Bosnia. He then went as an aid worker to Chechnya. People with comparable backgrounds who have been acquitted on allegations of being involved in extremism and jihad because our courts and our prosecutors have taken the view that that isn't necessarily the same as terrorism. Now, this is why Barbara Ahmed says he doesn't support terrorism, because he's, he, he obviously says that's, that, that's what his defence is. He hasn't necessarily engaged on the point about whether he was involved in the jihad. And I think that's because he's clearly concerned that if he, if he says he was involved in the jihad, he'd have a harder case in an American court. Right. Well, here's a final excerpt from, from your interview with Barbara Ahmed, uh, Dominic, in which he uh, explains why he doesn't want to be extradited to the States. I face the rest of my life in solitary confinement, and this is not a hypothetical scenario. There are people that have been 15 or 16 years in solitary confinement where they don't see any other human being. I, I don't know what effect it's going to have on my family. My parents find it difficult coming to visit me on a 12-hour round trip, and I'm here in the UK. There's no chance they're going to be able to co- go and visit me when I'm in the United States. And going to a foreign land where you don't know anyone, where you have nothing to do with and being far away from your family and loved ones, it's a, it's a nightmare that no one would wish on their worst enemy. Have you mentally prepared yourself for it? I don't think there's any way of mentally preparing yourself to spend the rest of your life in solitary confinement. Babar Ahmed, of course, uh, fearing uh, life in prison at ADX Florence, also known as the Alcatraz of the Rockies, where uh, the likes of Zacharias Massawi, who was involved in the 9-11 attacks, and Unabomber Ted Kaczynski are incarcerated. Um, Dominic Kashiani, I have to ask you, how big a fish is Babar Ahmed? Is he a Zacharias Massawi or a Unabomber? Well, I think that's the million-dollar question. I mean, he, he hasn't been charged with anything like a bomb plot as such. But the big question is how influential were the websites he's alleged to have run? And let's say, for argument's sake, if it is proven that he was running those websites, that would make him a very, very big fish because... Back in the day, back in the 1990s, when you had this idea of a global jihad developing and particularly that feeling of a a global Muslim brotherhood under attack, when that was developing in the UK, that was quite a small pool of people who were involved in it. And our security services struggled initially and then frantically after 9-11 to try and understand what was going on. Now, clearly the case against Barbara Ahmed made by the US is that he ran Azam.com and that website was right at the heart of the development of this, uh, this, this kind of jihadist ideology in the UK. And I think if it were proven that he w- did run that site, then he would be a very big fish indeed.
When, when you listen to Babur Ahmed, it, it sounds like he speaks like an attorney. What impression did you come away with uh, of this man? I think I came away with a very mixed impression of him. He's 37 years old. Um, you know, I'm no spring chicken. He's two years younger than me, but he looks a lot, lot older. I mean, I'd, I'd put him about 50 if I didn't know enough about his background. He's a very, very clear thinker, and he has a very dominant personality in the room. And, and that made the interview something of a challenge because he clearly wanted to get his points out, and there were things he didn't necessarily want to talk about. We felt that when we were talking to him about points which he felt uncomfortable about, particularly around whether or not he ran Azam.com, that he got very defensive at that point. And I think he was trying to keep on his central message, which was, where should I be tried? I believe I should be tried in the UK. But he's had an awful long time to think about this stuff. You know, if you spent almost eight years in prison, you become very focused on your case. And I really got the impression that this is a man who's uh, effectively becoming grey with waiting for a decision. And, and he just really thought that this interview was his last chance, his last chance to get his story across. His family and his supporters on the outside have worked very, very hard on his behalf. He's clearly got a lot of people who believe that he does not deserve to be in prison and he doesn't deserve to go to the States. But uh, there's also a lot of personal sadness in there beyond what's happened over the years. He, he was married, he'd settled down. He and his wife decided to split because he felt that it was unfair on her to have her hanging around if he was going to potentially spend the, loss, the rest of his life in America. I, I asked him what he would do if he was released, and he didn't really have an answer. And I think that's probably because he's not quite sure if he ever will be released. The BBC's Home Affairs correspondent, Dominic Casciani, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. You can see Dominic's exclusive interview with Babar Ahmad and find out more about the BBC's effort to gain access to him in prison. That's all at theworld.org. And coming up tomorrow, the case of a reporter in Yemen, jailed after he interviewed high-ranking Islamic militants. He's accused of being a frontman for al-Qaeda, and the U.S. wants him to stay behind bars. But an American journalist says there's no evidence against his Yemeni colleague. I think the U.S. wanted to stop him from doing these interviews with people whose voice they wanted silenced. And maybe they want them silenced with good reason, but then you don't go after the journalists who are interviewing them. Talking with al-Qaeda in Yemen tomorrow on The World. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands-on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Two days ago, Chinese artist Ai Weiwei launched WeiweiCam.com. It was a live video feed of the artist going about his everyday life, streamed from webcams he'd put up in his home. Ai Weiwei started the video feed exactly a year after he was arrested by Chinese officials and held without charge for 81 days. Weiwei Cam didn't last as long, though. Chinese officials quickly ordered the outspoken artist to shut it down. The world's Mary Kay Maxad is in Beijing. She says Ai Weiwei wanted to highlight the fact that he's been under constant government surveillance. I think it was a sort of a tongue-in-cheek piece of performance art. He's been under surveillance from the public security apparatus here ever since he was released from detention in June and, in fact, was under surveillance before that. So he said, hey, look, I'll help you guys out. I'll set up four cameras of my own. And you can see what I'm doing, and my friends who are concerned about what might be happening to me under your surveillance can also see what I'm doing. 
And it turned out the public security authorities didn't have much of a sense of humor and in less than 48 hours told them to take the cameras down. So we have this comment from Ai Weiwei. He spoke with the BBC today and told them he felt he had a responsibility to the public to record his treatment by the Chinese authorities. Here's Ai Weiwei. I have a responsibility to let people know what's going on, what is about tax charge. You know, those all relate to my condition. And there's so many people worried about me or supporting me in, in many ways. So I have the obligation to let them know what's going on. Chinese artist Ai Weiwei there saying that people are worried about him and that he has a responsibility to let them know what is going on. That's why he had these webcams in his studio. He also talked about that tax. He was uh, charged with tax evasion, I guess. So Ai Weiwei has now turned off these cameras. Did the Chinese government say why they asked him to turn them off? They didn't tell him why, no. And he said, and for that matter, they didn't tell me why they detained me for 81 days either. So why should I expect any sort of an explanation now? He had actually hoped to have the cameras up for 81 days uh, to mark the same period of time that he was in detention last year. Um, Obviously, he's not going to get that chance. It really seems like a kind of back and forth between the Chinese government and Ai Weiwei. I mean, they could do a little jujitsu on him and let him keep the cameras up because then everybody in the government would see what he's doing. I mean, you could argue that, couldn't you? You could, but in a way, I think they would like Ai Weiwei to just sort of go away. And Ai Weiwei is not that kind of person. I mean, he basically turns every punishment that the authorities try to throw at him into another protest of his own. Um, And I should say, related to the tax evasion penalty, it's very clearly a specious charge. The government's slapping him with $2.4 million as a penalty. And his supporters around China know that this is a specious charge. So altogether, about 30,000 people donated little bits and pieces of money, adding up to almost $1.3 million. So he was able to put that money down as a bond. And just last week, the court told him, you know, we're not going to let you have a publicly heard appeal, which he found outrageous. Mary Kay, were Ai Weiwei's webcams attracting attention within China? Well, certainly, yeah. People on Weibo, which is China's Twitter, were commenting on it. And Twitter itself was abuzz with uh, Ai Weiwei at this moment is sleeping in his bed. His cat is sitting on the stool. Mm. You know, he's now he's at his desk doing emails and also commenting on what it meant for him to put these surveillance cameras up. And a lot of people thought it was pretty brilliant. What's the bigger picture here with Ai Weiwei? I mean, do the Chinese... Not like him because he's outspoken or because he's just really successful, a brilliant self-promoter at getting seen and heard? So to put this in context, Ai Weiwei was one of the people who had the idea for the Bird's Nest Stadium that was the iconic building in the 2008 Beijing Olympics. He could have been the authorities' golden boy. But just before the Olympics, he started talking about how he felt that there were so many problems in China that were just being ignored or the authorities were trying to push, you know, everything under the carpet. And so everything would look bright and shiny when visitors came. They didn't like that. The authorities really have tried multiple times to silence him. Now they realize that he's sort of a threat to them because he just doesn't stop. The world's Mary Kay Magsat in Beijing. Thanks so much. Thank you, Marco. You can see a few views from Weiwei Cam before it was shut down, including an overhead shot of the artist and his cat. That's pretty cool. That's at theworld.org. Pope Benedict XVI is back in the Vatican this week after his recent travels to Cuba and Mexico. But this is not a down week for the pontiff. It's Holy Week leading up to Easter, the most important day on the Christian calendar. Today, Pope Benedict celebrated Holy Thursday Mass at the Vatican. 
And in his sermon, he denounced a group of priests who recently questioned the Catholic Church's teachings on celibacy and the ordination of women. It was a public reminder of Benedict's leadership style, firm, confident, and not open to questioning. Contrast that profile with the fictional pope in Italian director Nanni Moretti's latest movie. It's called We Have a Pope, and the pontiff in question is anything but confident. The world's William Troop has our preview. We Have a Pope begins with cardinals from all over the globe gathering at the Vatican for a pope's funeral. Then comes the new pope's election behind closed doors in the Sistine Chapel. It all looks like the real thing, and that's how director Nanni Moretti wanted it. I would say it's a dramatic comedy, better yet, a painful comedy, or an ironic drama. That ironic drama emerges early. As the cardinals vote to select a new pope, it's clear they don't know who to choose, and not one of them wants the job. Not me. Noni, I pray thee, have mercy upon thy servant, not to me, O Lord. Each cardinal begins to pray that the Lord won't pick him. But after a number of ballots, a new pope is chosen, and he's a backbencher, a French cardinal no one seemed to notice before. You can tell he's not thrilled, but all seems to go as planned until the crucial moment when the new pontiff is supposed to be presented to the faithful crowding St. Peter's Square. Abemus papam! The scream is actually the new pope having a nervous breakdown. He can't face the crowd and retreats into his quarters. A psychiatrist, played by Nanni Moretti himself, is called in by the Vatican to help the pope overcome his doubts and insecurities. But it doesn't work as planned. Moretti says that in coming up with that scenario, he was inspired by something he's learned about the men who have become popes in the recent past. All those cardinals at the moment they become pope claim to feel terrified, not ready, inadequate, etc. But it's up to us to believe it or not. Moretti describes himself as a lapsed Catholic. He says that allows him to give his on-screen pope and cardinals more humanity. And that offers a clue as to what Moretti is really getting at with this movie. He says his goal wasn't really to send Catholic authorities a message, but to highlight something all human beings can relate to. This film is about our struggle to fulfill roles that others assign us, or that are assigned to us by fate, or by God, for those who believe. This is a theme in many of my movies. There's always a gap between what we ask ourselves to do and what we are actually able to do. Nanni Moretti's We Have a Pope opens tomorrow in New York and Los Angeles. For The World, I'm William Troop. You can watch the trailer for We Have a Pope. There's a link at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Three young musicians from Ontario made a discovery on a trip to France. We found ourselves at a place called the Etapla Cemetery. You kind of go down into this ravine, go down these steps, and it opens up, and there's 11,500 soldiers buried there. That discovery helped inspire an album. We'll hear some of it ahead on The World. 
ERI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The violence in Syria is intensifying, and so is the diplomatic effort to stop the fighting. At the United Nations, there were new calls for the government of Bashar al-Assad to stick to a planned ceasefire scheduled for next week. That's part of Special Envoy Kofi Annan's plan. All points of the plan are crucial, but one is most urgent the need for cessation of violence. Clearly, the violence is still continuing. Alarming levels of casualties and other abuses continue to be reported daily. Opposition activists say the Assad regime is heightening its attacks on the opposition ahead of the deadline. The latest attack near the capital, Damascus, unfolded today. One activist described it as one of the most violent government campaigns since the uprising began a year ago. Borzu Daragahi of the Financial Times is following events from Beirut in neighboring Lebanon. He's been in touch with opposition figures in the town of Douma. This is a suburb of Damascus that's a heavily urbanized area. And uh, th- this area is being shelled now. This is a very, very urban area. Uh, and they're using rockets to attack it kind of indiscriminately uh, and attempt at, um, you know, obviously terrorize the population into submission. Um, there's very little information about Uh, any kind of attacks against the government uh, by the uh, Free Syrian Army. Uh, This is just an attempt to to, to sort of uh, play, use the opportunity, use the diplomatic space created by Kofi Annan's uh, initiative to uh, 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 crush the opposition. So tanks, intense shelling, rockets, uh, have you heard anything about casualties? Um, This is very early. Usually these numbers come later. According to the local coordination committees, which is an activist group that I've I've trusted uh, over the uh, uh, over the past year, um, you know, so far they've counted uh, 27 people killed uh, nationwide. This number could increase dramatically over the next few hours. Now, there have been conflicting comments from the Syrian government uh, about the peace plan that uh, Kofi Annan has, has generated. What is your take? My take is that they've rejected the peace plan. If you look at their remarks uh, carefully, uh, and, and I, I mean, I wrote this in the Financial Times, that basically they've essentially rejected huge, important, critical parts of the peace plan. Uh, uh, number one item in the peace plan was uh, to refrain from attacking civilian areas. And uh, yeah, they had Jihad Makdisi, who's a spokesperson for the foreign ministry, come out and said, we will uh, refrain from uh, hitting civilian areas when they're pacified. So essentially, we will stop killing our enemies when they're dead. Uh, which is sort of, you know, Orwellian, but basically it means that, uh, you know, forget it. We're not going to abide by the terms of this uh, peace deal. So there's a deadline next week uh, on April 12th, 6 a.m. Syrian time for uh, all fighting to cease. Um, If you look at this peace plan and the international statements, including those from the U.S., uh, one thing that's noticeably absent from this peace plan are consequences for Assad if he chooses to ignore this deadline next week. Yeah, absolutely. I I think this is a a real diplomatic quandary. I think that many uh, people would like to do something. Many governments would like to do something. Uh, They don't know what to do. Um, They're under public pressure. They're under international pressure. It's just like Bosnia, you know, 20 years ago, you know, and in the absence of, of knowing what to do, they come up with these diplomatic initiatives so that they don't seem like they're totally cruel and heartless. 
Um, but you know, perhaps it would be more useful if uh, people were just honest and say, look, you know, the Syrian people are on their own. No one's going to help them. And it's obvious what Bashar al-Assad's strategy is, is that he's just going to keep killing people uh, and killing people because he knows that if uh, and he knows and the Russians know and the Chinese know and the Americans know uh, and the Iranians know that as soon as he implements a, a ceasefire, there's going to be millions of people out on the streets uh, demanding uh, Bashar al-Assad be beheaded. Uh, and that the regime be changed, and that will be the end for him. So he's not going to let up. Uh, uh, there's no way for him to let up because it's just his survival at stake. And I think it would be uh, interesting if there was some honesty uh, with regard to this issue in the, from the diplomatic community. Boisar Daragahi of the Financial Times in Beirut, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. President Assad claims he can still count on widespread support in Syria. Observers say that's probably only true among Alawites, members of the Islamic sect to which Assad himself belongs. The embattled president also has some support in Hatay, a province in southern Turkey that was part of Syria until 1938. The province is one of Turkey's most multi-ethnic, with many minorities whose relatives next door have done well under the secular Assad regime. From Turkey, Matthew Brunwasser reports. It might sound a bit counterintuitive. This Orthodox Christian priest is praying in Arabic, in Turkey. His church is in Tokachla, one of the few Christian villages in Turkey, which is a mostly Sunni Muslim country. The priest is swinging an incense burner to chase away the evil spirits. Locals feel like they need the help these days. The village is only a few miles from the Altanozu refugee camp and less than 10 miles from the chaos across the border in Syria. And the government is preparing for the arrival of 20,000 more refugees. Hatay is famous for its ethnic mosaic. This area was part of Syria until 1938. Some 10% of Syria's population are Christian, and there are still thousands left here. People in Hatay are especially sensitive to the troubles next door in Syria. And many support President Bashar al-Assad. A protest last month drew 3,000 shouting supporters onto the streets of Antakya. Ashkun Demir is a Christian and a farmer in Tokachla. He says that Syrians need a strong hand like Assad to lead them. If you leave them free, they'll be like cows in the barn when you don't lock the door. They'll start running around everywhere and making trouble. The conflict, he says, is between freedom for a few and stability for all. The Ba'ath Party, which has ruled Syria since 1963, is solidly secular, and that's popular with religious minorities. Syria's population is about 75 percent Sunni Muslim. The Christian community wants rule by Assad to continue. Why? Because when we took power after his father died, Bashar gave the Christians more social rights and opportunities. They were so relieved when he took power. They lived more freely and were happy with their lives. Minorities see the Assad regime as representing multi-ethnicity and religious tolerance, and they can't imagine anyone in a post-Assad Syria giving them a better deal. Just ask John Choban, who owns a cafe here in Tokachla. You can't predict the future, but let's say radical Muslims win the elections. The Christians' lives will never again be normal like they are now. They could expel the Christians, or their lives could get more difficult. They might be prevented from praying and practicing their religion. They live better now in Syria than we do here in Turkey. 
When observers mention the possibility of Syria descending into sectarian war, they're generally referring to tensions between majority Sunni Muslims and President Assad's Alawite Islamic sect. Alawites make up about 16% of the population, and Sunnis resent them for monopolizing power. And so Alawites are terrified of a backlash. And in Hatay, there are fears of that backlash spreading across the border. Alawites are estimated to make up some 15% of the population in Turkey, where they're known as Alavi. In Hatay province, they make up about half. Shefik Kazar teaches at an Alavi foundation in Antakya. He denies the common perception that Alawites control power in Syria, and he suspects that foreign hands are at work stirring the unrest next door. People who go to Syria say Bashar Assad is an educated and cultured man. He studied in England. His wife is also educated and cultured. He is not rough and ignorant. He is not a dictator. He is not like other strong rulers. There is only one party, of course, but it's not like the rest. If a post-Assad Syria does descend into sectarian war, nowhere in Turkey would feel it more than Hatay. Not only because of their geographical proximity, common Alawite faith in Arabic language, but because the Sunni Muslims, Christians and Alevis in Hatay fear it could unravel their own special multi-ethnic way of life. For The World, I'm Matthew Brunwasser, Tokachlu, Turkey. Our GeoQuiz today is inspired by a poem. It's a poem that was written in a city that flourished thousands of years ago. It was a sacred city of the ancient Sumerian kingdom. Its temples and fortresses were located about 60 miles south of modern-day Baghdad. Over the years, archaeologists have uncovered thousands of stone tablets with ancient texts in cuneiform. One of those tablets is referred to as number 2461, and it includes a passionate love poem. Lion, I would be taken by you to the bedchamber. You have captivated me. Let me stand trembling before you. It's said to be the oldest known love poem in the world. The tablet is exhibited at Istanbul's Archaeological Museum. We'll sample a bit more of the poem in a couple of minutes, but first try to come up with the name of this 4,000-year-old city outside of modern Baghdad. Before we give you the answer, a quick flyby to Senegal, where Yusu Endur has had the professional ride of his life. In the past four months, the artist has gone from Grammy-winning superstar to presidential candidate to rejected candidate to political activist and now cabinet minister. The story, as some of you may recall, is that Senegal held presidential elections in February. Yusu Endur had announced last year that he planned to run in those elections, but the government of then-President Abdoulaye Wad disqualified Endur on a technicality. President Wad himself was technically not allowed to run for a third term, but he got special dispensation. And after Wad's court rejected Yusu Endur's candidacy, Endur became even more determined that Wad had to go. He endorsed leading opposition candidate Maki Sall, and in a March 26 runoff vote, Sall ousted the two-term Wad. This past Monday, Yusu Endur held a victory concert for Sall, and yesterday, Maki Sall announced Yusu Endur would be his new minister for culture and tourism. After Endur's failed bid for the presidency, some Senegalese wondered whether he should have begun his political career in a more humble fashion, with a run for mayor of Dakar, for example, or for a parliamentary seat. 
But it seems now that Endure's political career has gotten started in much closer proximity to the position he wanted in the first place. Will it end his musical career? The new job will keep him busy for sure, but it's not going to stop Yusu Endure from making music. Come to theworld.org. I've got a blog post on his latest concert, the one he gave Monday in Dakar. And from the looks of it, this is not a man ready to give up on show business quite yet. One of the world's earliest known love poems was written on a 4,000-year-old clay tablet. You can find it in Istanbul's Archaeological Museum, and it does not begin with roses are red, violets are blue. At the museum, well, that's where journalist and poet Dan Boylan first came across the ancient poem. And Dan, introduce us to this ancient love poem known as Istanbul number 2461, written for a Sumerian king. Not a very romantic title, but how old is it? The poem is uh, it's 4,000 years old. Scholars say that it was part of a Mesopotamian festival of fertility that usually came uh, just about this time of year for spring. And part of it was for the Sumerian king to demonstrate his sexual prowess, his fertility, by marrying a queen. Uh, And this marriage to the queen was sort of a faux marriage, and this would show the power and the force of the Mesopotamian culture was ready to move towards spring. But there was a salacious part of this as well, because the ancient Sumerian culture, they didn't really have too many many hang-ups about sex, shall we say. Well, uh, that's quite healthy. I, I think it is healthy. It's it's a great way to bring in spring. Part of that you can you can sense from the actual text. We'll get to the text in a moment, but first, where was this tablet found by archaeologists? This was actually found in a spot uh, called Nippur, which which is now modern Iraq. It was found in the 1880s, uh, and it really hung around the archaeological museum of Istanbul in a pile of I guess it was about 74,000 of these little cuneiform tablets. And Turkish archaeologist was poking through them, and uh, he came across this one, and it, it jumped out completely as, as much more salacious and fun. So let's hear a couple of verses of this poem, uh, Istanbul number 2461, read here by a Russian actress uh, who resides in Istanbul. Bridegroom, dear to my heart, goodly is your beauty, honey sweet. You have captivated me. Let me stand trembling before you. Lion, I would be taken by you to the bedchamber. You have captivated me. Let me stand trembling before you. Bridegroom, let me caress you. My precious caress is more savory than honey. In the bedchamber, honey-filled, let me enjoy your goodly beauty. Lion, let me caress you. I got to say, for uh, an ancient poem, that's pretty hot. You're in Istanbul, Dan, for an event that celebrates international poetry. I mean, given the powerhouse of poets throughout history, why did you choose this particular poem, this love poem, to be featured at today's event? I chose this poem because my mother and I uh, were wandering through the Istanbul Archaeological Museum, and there it was. And I stumbled upon it, and I thought, my gosh, look at this. There is Istanbul number 2461. And it said, this is the world's oldest love poem. Do you think that's true then? That that is indeed the world's oldest love poem. I think that as far as we can tell, uh, it has to do with your belief in love. And I believe in love. And I thought, why not? Poem written on a 4,000-year-old clay tablet. I have a hard time kind of envisioning that. What does it look like? It looks about the size of a cell phone. And what's incredible about it is that it's absolutely packed with script you really are amazed that they managed to get all the writing onto this little tablet because what they wrote is so spicy that you think it might actually make somebody's handshake. You didn't happen to take a picture of it, did you? 
I did, actually. I have a photo of it. Any chance you could send it to us? We'll post that on our website. I can fire that right along. Beautiful. Dan, thanks for speaking with us. Marco, thank you very much. Journalist Dan Boylan there with the answer to our geo-quiz today. It's the ancient Sumerian city of Nippur, now in Iraq. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. One of Australia's most famous musicians died this week. Jimmy Little was 75. Little recorded pop and country and western songs. He was also one of Australia's most prominent aborigines, among the first to make it big in mainstream pop culture there. The world's Jason Margolis met Jimmy Little in Australia last year. I asked Little which of his many songs were his all-time favorites. At the top of his list was a personal song, Yorda Yorda Man. I was born on the banks of the Murray. Yorta Yorta is my mother's tribal stand. I'm her son, but my father's name I carry. As I walked through this great and ancient land. For a reporter, it's fun to sit down and chat with famous musicians to hear about their lives and their music. But what I remember most about meeting Jimmy Little was how kind and gentle he was. Twelve years ago, Little was diagnosed with diabetes, which affected his ability to walk. I'm walking like a man who's drunk, (laughs) trying to balance myself. Diabetes has become a major problem in Australia's Aboriginal communities. In his later years, Little kept busy meeting with Aboriginal schoolchildren and teaching them about nutrition. But not as a famous musician, just as Uncle Jimmy. And I put the phrase of uncle just so the kids can can feel I'm part of the family. Uncle Jimmy, oh, not Mr. Little coming. It's Uncle Jimmy, oh, yeah. Despite his ailing health, Little was proud of the work he was doing with children and his musical legacy. I look back on the years and I realize that my boyhood dreams have come true. Someday I know I will be returning like the legend of my tribal boomerang. You can hear Jason's profile of Jimmy Little at theworld.org. The Canadian band Elliot Brood likes to tackle big themes. In their latest release, Days into Years, the subject is survival, the idea of making it through difficult times. In particular, they were inspired by stories of soldiers who made it through the First World War. The world's Alex Galifant has more. Elliot Brood is just a name. The band's made up of three Canadians. One of them's Mark Sasso. He says the title of their album, Days Into Years, gets at one aspect of war that soldiers from every generation could relate to. In World War I, they were basically told, you know, we'll go over to Europe, you'll meet some girls, you'll be there for a few months, we'll, we'll kick their butts and we'll be home. You'll be home. And that's not obviously what happened. They're, in the, they're living in ditches for four years and stuff like that. So it, you get old quickly and Days Into Years, kind of the title of it has to do a lot with that idea. Early on in the album, there's a song called Lines. It tries to capture the idea of being in the trenches for a long stretch of time. So there's some heroes up with their boyish charms, but the cold for us to win. Oh, the to win. The 
spark for the song and the album came as the band was on tour in Europe. They found themselves in parts of the French countryside that were drenched in military history and in memory. Here's another band member, Casey Laforette. Like within the first couple of hours, we found ourselves at a place called the Etapla Cemetery, which is actually not the front lines, but it's the back lines of World War One, and it's a huge cemetery that you kind of go down into this ravine, go down these steps, and it opens up, and there's eleven thousand five hundred soldiers buried there. The band is adamant that the album's not political. It's not even meant as a critique of war. It's more about that notion of survival. But being in a place like the World War One cemetery, it became more than an exercise in imagination. You know, it's like it's heart wrenching, and you kind of go into a different place when you actually see family names that you actually know that are buried there. The next track is called "If I Get Old." It takes the perspective of soldiers who'd made it through the war and made their way home. Again, Mark Sasso. How hard it must have been to come back and readjust to like a regular job, a family, a wife, children. How hard would that be after you've lived in a ditch for three or four years? You know, there was no tour of duty in World War One. You're there. You're there. If I get old, I'm living easy. Soldier, ready to kill more Germans? While the members of Elliot Brood worked on the album, they soaked up literature and films about the era, such as the Stanley Kubrick movie Paths of Glory. A wife? I got a wife? He's a bit shell shocked. I beg your pardon, Sergeant. There is no such thing as shell shock. Have you got a wife, soldier? My wife. The band also imagined the final moments of a soldier who didn't make it out of the trenches. In this song, "Hold You," one soldier consoles another as his life slips away. You might be calling out for your your mother or the person that you actually want to hold you, but it's actually your best friend that's in beside you in the trenches. That's actually going to be the one that's. Comforting you at the end of your life. Asked the members of Elliot Brood if they ever worried that current veterans might not appreciate an indie rock band trying to get inside the experience of war. They said they'd never feel comfortable tackling today's conflicts. There's not enough distance, no way of standing back from what's happening. 
unlike the First World War. I, I don't feel bad or anything like that kind of telling the story. It's like, it's almost 100 years now. All of the people from World War I are gone. On the French coast, the band visited a famous site from the Second World War too, Juno Beach in Normandy. It's where the bulk of Canadian forces landed on D-Day. For the members of Elliot Brood, it was another reminder of what previous generations of soldiers went through. We're, we're very, very fortunate. All we can do is kind of try to interpret the stories in the way that we feel is responsible and good. For The World, I'm Alex Galifant. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI, Public Radio International.